Well, that's a little teaser for what's going to happen in the uh, next few Sundays. Next Sunday is the end of the church year, and then December 2nd is the beginning of the new church year. And so we want to celebrate that, and we're going to do a classic Christmas series of teaching. We've been going through some deep stuff. This will be some more classic stuff as we get into next Sunday and Advent season. So please invite a friend, let people know what's going on at Pilgrim. And like Ruth said, these Advent books start on December 1, actually, even though the first Sunday is December 2nd. So please grab them this Sunday or next Sunday. Um, And uh, we encourage you to read through these. There's a passage for each day and then a devotional. And hopefully, uh, as we do that together, God will stir some things in our hearts together. And I'll be preaching on the Sunday text in this book as well uh, throughout Advent. And so please encourage you to grab one of those. Would you stand with me this morning one more time if you're able to do so? And I want to read to you from Psalm 8, which will be what I'm going to teach on this morning uh, in just a moment. We're going to do some background and then we'll get into Psalm 8, but I want to read this this morning and just hear it. Um, Normally I'd say follow along, but just, just hear it. I don't even want it on the screen as I read it. I'm going to read it twice. Psalm 8 a psalm of David. God, brilliant Lord, yours is a household name. Nursing infants gurgle choruses about you, and toddlers shout the songs that drown out the enemy's talk and silence atheist babble. I look up at your macro skies, dark and enormous, your handmade sky jewelry. The moon and the stars mounted in their settings. And then I look at my micro self and I wonder, why do you bother with us at all? Why take a second look our way? Yet we've so narrowly missed being gods, bright with Eden's dawn light. You put us in charge of your handcrafted world And repeated to us your Genesis charge. You made us lords of sheep and cattle, even animals out in the wild. Birds flying and fish swimming and whales singing in the ocean depths. God, brilliant Lord, your name echoes around the world. That's from the message by Eugene Peterson of Blessed Memory. Let me read to you from one more translation that's a little different as well, but maybe more familiar if you've memorized it. O Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your reputation throughout the earth. You reveal your majesty in the heavens above, and from the mouths of children and nursing babies, you've ordained praise on account of your adversaries so that you might put an end to the vindictive enemy. When I look up at the heavens which your fingers made and see the moon and the stars which you set in place, of what importance is the human race that you should notice them? Of what importance is humankind that you should pay attention to them? And you make them a little less than heavenly beings. You grant humankind honor and majesty. You appoint them to rule over your creation and you've placed everything under their authority including all the sheep and the cattle and the wild animals, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, and everything that moves through the currents of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your reputation throughout the earth. 
Or an older translation said, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to the end of this series for this season, and we look at the writings and particularly the Psalms of the Old Testament, I pray that you would breathe healing and hope through these words. That as we learn that you gave the ancients and the ancients gave voice to their struggles and their pain and their celebrations and all the range of emotions, including times of feeling even dead, we pray that we would learn once again that there is language that scripture gives us to speak differently than the words that our world tries to limit us to. Lord, dethrone the royal totalizing claims that keep claiming our lives as we lift you up and remember that you are on the ultimate throne. So Holy Spirit, move today. I'm a saint and sinner in process. I can't change anybody's life. I'm not the most eloquent speaker. But Lord, I know that your spirit can do amazing things through your words, through these jars of clay like me and like these brothers and sisters here today. So do your work in Jesus' name. And if you will say amen, please be seated in God's presence today. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The pastor and author whose first translation I read here, Eugene Peterson, notes that it's easy, it's easy for us to look at the grandeur and beauty of the mountains or to bask in the warmth of the sun And recognize the beauty in creation. And yet sometimes we ignore the people right in front of us. We ignore the people right in front of us. Several years ago, Eugene said, One of my students who lived in a distance away and rode a crowded bus to college each day, I think of the 49 or the 41 here in Vancouver, one of these students who was riding the bus said to his wife as he went out the door one morning, I'm going to go out and immerse myself in God's creation today. And the next day, his parting words were the same to his wife. And on the third day, she called back and said, don't you think you ought to go to class today instead of immersing yourself in creation? A couple of days walking in the woods or on the beach is okay, but don't you think enough is enough? And he said, oh, I have been going to class every day. Then what she said is all this business about immersing yourself in creation. Well, I spend 40 minutes on the bus each morning and afternoon, and can you think of a setting more thick with creation than that? All these created people, created in the image of God, created male and female. And she said, I never thought you meant it that way. Peterson said, we need to embrace the people around us with the same delight as we do the hawks soaring above and the violets blooming in our feet, men and women, children and elderly, the beautiful and the plain, the blind and the deaf, amputees, paralytics, the mentally impaired, the emotionally distraught, each a significant and sacred detail of nature, of God's creation. This morning we are wrapping up a series where we did an overview of the Old Testament and I wanted to drill it down super specific in this last section called The Writings by looking at a psalm. And we'll talk a little bit about the psalms and how the book, one way to understand the book of psalms. 
But at the end of the day, think about it in terms of these are people putting to words and to music all kinds of things they're going through. And the Psalms has been the worship book of the church. In fact, even in Bibles that are just the New Testament, oftentimes they add the Psalms and the Proverbs to the back, part of the writings, the third part of the third canon in the Old Testament. We've spoken already in this short series, and some of these concepts may be large for many of you, but we've spoken already about two other aspects of the Old Testament, that the Old Testament can be broken into the Torah, also called the Law, or the Books of Moses, or the Pentateuch. We've talked then last week about the prophets, and then the other breakout of the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible, are the writings. Now, sometimes there's more subdivisions, and I spelled out some of those in the other two sermons, and you can listen or re-listen online and see the notes again, and I encourage you to do that if you didn't quite grasp it all. But to really understand these three sections, this third section, the people of Israel are wrestling with what does it mean to have come either back to the land after being exiled or kicked out of the land, or they're living in exile and they've never returned. And what does it mean? What does my faith mean when all of the foundations that I used to have or used to think were most important are no longer there or they're no longer there in the same way they used to be? And the writings speak to a living, breathing, ancient Judaism And Christians have then understood that the highlight of the Bible of Old Testament was leading to Jesus in Luke 24 and Colossians 1 and 2 and other places we can point to that Jesus was the point of everything that went before. But they still reached back to those texts because as we've said, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God, which is you, in fact, that's an address in, some, in the Eastern church anyway, to refer to someone as the servant of God and your name. I, I'm just going to ask you to play with me. Some of you, if you don't want to do this because it drives you batty, it's fine, it's fine. But it might be good for you. The Lord might want to set you free from some of that. But look at your neighbor and just address them. Look them in the eyes and say, servant of God. Find someone else and look them in the eyes, even if you're glaring across the room, and say, servant of God. If you know their name, say their name after that. Servant of God. Second Timothy three seventeen, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Another key verse in the series that I just want to brush on for a second, if you're following along in your handy dandy outline, First Corinthians. Chapter 3, verse 11, Menno Simons, part of the Anabaptist reformers, said this, For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so as we've looked at this series on understanding a real basic overview of the Old Testament, and we will in the new year talk a little bit about how the New Testament's put together, but we pause in the Advent season, we learned also that the Bible's not flat. That the Bible tells us itself that we don't read it in all the same way. We read the Old Testament through the New Testament, and we read everything through Jesus. And that we worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And, and while others and other, believe, other religious paths have said, oh, Christians are people of the book, in one sense, yes, because the book takes a high place in how we structure our worship whether in Protestant or Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or whatever kind of church, the Bible is our preeminent place we go to, and it speaks authoritatively to us. Ultimately, the Bible has authority because Jesus gives it that authority. 
which seems kind of strange. Well, how do I know about Jesus unless I know about the Gospels? And, and you can get into this sort of circular reasoning. But remember that for the first several hundred years of the church, as the New Testament letters were being written, and I should say they're being written and not finalized into canons, uh, the first Thessalonians written just maybe a decade or two after Jesus living on earth, which is closer than any other ancient document uh, writings about someone who lived. Usually there's hundreds of years, but it wasn't finalized at that point. And yet the church exploded. Well, how is that even possible if they didn't have the Bible as we have it today? Because Christianity is not a religion of the book, it's a religion of the person, Jesus Christ. And the claims that he rose from the dead, and his life and teachings that were being passed along and written down for us. And so we are, ultimately we look at this, we don't worship this, it is authoritative, but we don't worship it. We are not people of the book, as Muhammad said, we are people of the person, God and man, Jesus Christ. Well, let's go on a little bit this morning. So the third section that we're talking about today is called the writings. And you can look along here in your outline, the bottom of the front page, it just says the writings there. The writings you can see in that uh, lovely graph include the books of the Psalms, which is the largest book. And the Psalms, other than Isaiah, are the most quoted in the New Testament authors, which is another reason why I want to zero in on Psalms today. But in this Jewish rendering of the Old Testament, the writings include Job, Proverbs, uh, Ruth, Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and First and Second Chronicles. Now, before you leave today, I have a nice little gift for you if you haven't grabbed one of these. It's a bookmark that has some of the other way to understand Old Testament from some Christian, some Protestant ordering of how they think of the books as well. But I like threes, so I like the more Jewish way of ordering it. But if you want to have one of these, this will help you memorize the order, by the way. If you're trying to find out your books of the Bible and using a paper Bible, you can grab one of these and stick it in there and look at it. So before you go today... Um, here is a end-of-the-church-year uh, present for me uh, to you. So Merry Christmas or Merry Christ the King Sunday next week. Grab one, okay? Stick it in your Bible. Stick it in your whatever you carry with you. So let's talk about the third section, then we'll end with Psalm 8. The third section in the Bible called the Writings are somewhat miscellaneous in character, right? They're different genres, different topics, different perspectives, and it reflects what how's happening within Judaism in this phase of Israel's history. It's multifaceted, and some would say that there's a, a bit of inter-Jewish pluralism going on, meaning totally different perspectives on how we relate to God and what God is doing. It also shows that there were different and powerful voices in Judaism in these writings within the outline, if you're looking at that today. But what unites these writings is that they're post-exile people, People have been kicked out of the land and either have come back and they're trying to figure out how to live faithfully in difficult times. The Psalms have been an enduring book because all throughout them it expresses a full range of people being honest with the Lord and speaking about and to God. It doesn't mean they even agree on exactly how to view the law in the Old Testament and the prophets theologically or socially or otherwise, but there's a wrestling with God. There's something about an authentic faith and that Christianity affirms this and reaffirms this, that is about engaging in the relationship with the Lord, even when it doesn't feel like your ducks are in a row, even when it feels like you're on the verge or you're a practice, practical atheist, 
or when you've had a great encounters, but then other bad things happen or good things happen. There's this concept that the wrestling part of our relationship with the Lord is what drives our faith journey forward. And even more than that, that we do it in community with others. And that in encountering everybody's victories and struggles and their faith journey in community, something greater has happened and the Spirit of God gets poured out again and again in the midst of the wrestling. Sort of the, 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 the grand story of that in Old Testament is the wrestling with the angel of Jacob. And he wrestles with this angel of the Lord, this messenger from God, and God allows himself to be defeated in this. Defeated, captive, held for a season, and then God... Uh, causes his hip to go out of joint in this interesting, fascinating story, and his name is changed to one who wrestles with God. Of course, God could have overpowered him and wiped him out of existence as all of creation, but he doesn't because God values so much that love relationship and drawing us into what does it mean to be loving people and engaging in that. Oh, there's so much there. A little more I could say about the Psalms. And the writings, I should say, this larger group, there are those that were rebuilding and dwelling in Jerusalem, coming back after exile, trying to find what is new normal when we're no longer really politically free and we're, we're sort of aliens and strangers in our own land. And then those that were still scattered throughout the world, the diaspora, which continues to this day for, from Jews that were scattered from those original scatterings. What does it mean to be faithful in a foreign land with foreign religion? And then and when we become Christians, when we become Christians, there is no state this side of Jesus' second coming where Jesus literally and visibly is reigning over it in that sense. We are all aliens and foreigners and strangers. And Paul uses this language in the book of Hebrews talks about this, that this idea that we are here and we are dwelling as resident aliens in the land that God has placed us. And the writings speak to these situations. Just like we today, we Christians in any nation, talking with the church of the past and the Bible and history, and we're talking about the place we find ourselves and what does it mean to follow God faithfully, to follow Jesus faithfully today? What does it mean to be a faithful Christian in modern post-Christendom Canada? The writings give us voice and tools to think about this. We can learn from the exile of the ancient Jewish people, ancient Israel. There are four groups in the writing, just to make sure we cover the outline for those of you that are a bit more uh, tick off the boxes and the inside of the outline. There are four groups in the writings. There are the books, the great books of the Psalms, Job, or Job, 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 and Proverbs. And they, and they ask, what about evil? What is our response? Is there a God-given order? What kind of order is this? There is music and hymns and lament, and they point to a faith that continues to wrestle with God. I love how Job is written like an epic poem, and we get the insight that Job never gets at the beginning of it from the author, and we get to the end of it, and God comes down and says, y'all don't know what you're talking about. All his friends theologizing, his neo-reformed friends were all saying, well, this was God's perfect. God says, they have no clue what they're, they need to stop smoking. They're too Canadian. And no, he, no, it doesn't say that, but it says something like that. That's modern paraphrase. He says, they don't know. Were you there when the foundations were formed? And, and, and it wraps up by this pointing to sort of God's infinitely wise and God risking a lot. And ultimately, where Job is found faithful is not in his friend's theology or even his own theology, which God still condemns their theology, where he is found most faithful in the book of Job is that he never stopped wrestling with Yahweh. 
And because of that, the relationship is restored. A huge, important point. People want to draw all this sort of problem of evil out of Job, and they, they ignore the interpretation that the book actually gives. Drives people like me who are sort of uh, armchair pastor theologians a little batty when people ignore when a book actually tells you, this is how you're supposed to get out of this. So they want to impose their view on the text, the certain view of sovereignty on Job. No, no, no. Read what Job says it's about. Dear Lord, if I value the Bible enough not to do violence against it, if it's pointing somewhere, listen to it. But I digress, and everyone said, Amen. (laughs) The second section in the writings are the five scrolls, which are the Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations. Ruth is also called Hadassah, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, or rather Esther, sorry, Esther's Hadassah, and Esther. So Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther, Hadassah. Various voices are brought together, and this made up the, the liturgical year. Even today in the Jewish religion, these books are used in some of the major celebrations. Purim, the, the feast of Esther, Hadassah, how she was under exile, and God granted her favor under a, a, a secular or a, a, a different, a pagan religious government. And God used her, enabled her to save the people from destruction and a great celebration. The third section in the writings is the apocalyptic book of Daniel. Daniel is an apocalypse very much like the book of Revelation in some ways in the New Testament. And it's a book of hope that ultimately God will bring about renewal of all things. And in fact, Daniel is quoted in New Testament in reference to the deliverer who is named as Jesus Messiah. And then the historical books within the writings of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. Chronicles ends, Second Chronicles in our Bible, chapter 36, ends with the return of some Jewish back, to, back from exile by edict of Cyrus, the Persian king, modern-day Iran. Judaism was preoccupied with exile and return to the land and that Yahweh was working even under the radar of the empire that God is working. So Judaism is trying to, how does it come to grips with changing circumstances? So these books, the writings speak to us today as Christians, as people who name that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, and yet oftentimes it feels like Caesar is winning. Oftentimes it felt to them like Babylon would never end, that Persia would go on and on and on, and yet every Babylon, which by the way, throughout the Bible and New Testament, anytime the word Babylon is invoked, it talks about imperial powers that seem all-controlling and domineering and crushing of people if you don't go along with exactly what they say, which often is the rejection of God or Jesus Christ as Lord. And so whenever you hear the word Babylon, that's a cue in your mind, whether it's in later Old Testament or certainly in the New Testament, that Babylon becomes a symbol within the book of Revelation of human power that thinks it's ultimate, but ultimately Babylon is always overthrown and one day will ultimately be overthrown for all time when Jesus comes again. Talk about that in the first Sunday of Advent just a little bit. They're wrestling with it. Multiple perspectives, but the core is intact. That there's a God who is at work and whose power is outrageously loving and bringing about justice in ways that look different than we think from the ways of the world around us. So let's talk about the Psalms. Are you still awake this morning? Little, I know it's the last deep message. I know a lot of a detail, but are you still awake? Okay, all right. I love the Psalms. I said that about the prophets. I love the prophets too. Torah, thank you, Jesus. You've set us free from the curse of the law, as Paul says. There's some good stories in Torah. Don't get me wrong. 
Prophets, they start, they ring my bell. Prophet denunciation and the hopeful turn. And you get into the writings, into the Psalms. Oh, here are people getting real before the Lord. These people are not, um, these people have found their voice. (laughs) And they're not afraid to use it. They get the wrestling part. And so the Psalms, why do we need to understand? The Psalms, as perhaps Trimper Longman says this, the most familiar and most foreign of the books of the Bible. Foreign because it's poetic in how it's written. It uses poetry. And again, whenever you translate poetry from one language to another, and then you're trying to understand it in your language, if it's a third layer, it gets, sometimes can get messy. But it's worth wrestling with poetry because every language has poetry, so we get the idea that the words are doing more than just literally saying something literal. They're doing something else. In the Psalms, if you read the, or listened to the clip I posted online of uh, Bono talking with Eugene Peterson, when it says God is a rock, you're not supposed to think that God is literally a rock sitting in the back of my house or in the parking lot. But it's an image, it's an analogy that God is solid, that God is unmovable, that when everything else is moving around me, whether we're talking about emotions or politics or my family or relationships or my church, that, there's, that God is the rock. And I thank the Lord that I was raised in a church and became a Christian in a church that used the language of the Psalms in little weird choruses that we don't sing anymore and all this, but we'd talk about God being our rock. And people would stand up and testify and quoting from King James' version of the Psalms saying that he is my rock. He has taken me out of the miry clay. My feet were sinking in miry clay of my experience and he pulled me out with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. All this is poetic language, by the way. God is not literally taking down a physical arm and pulling me out of literal miry stuff that I'm standing in. But he's in the sense of our experience of life. There are times when we are mired down and bogged down and overwhelmed. And there's a sense that God reached down unexpectedly. I wasn't expecting. He reached down and pulled me up and he set me, my feet, upon the rock. There's old hymns that use this language. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me find myself in thee. Sort of this idea of rock in the sight of a mountain that's protected from the storm. But this is poetic language. God is not literally a mountain. God is not literally a rock. In fact, if you're a fundamentalist and you read the Psalms literally like that, and sometimes atheists and fundamentalists read it the same way, you come up with some crazy, just crazy stuff. Missing the point of how you read the book. So the Psalms are direct talk with God, about God, to God. And we remember in the Old Testament, worship was almost always communal. Sometimes these would be personal prayers, but almost always in community because we're created differently and different personalities and different seasons of life and different ages and a different makeup. And and this, we bring the richness of community when we worship and we wrestle with these texts together in home church and Sunday mornings. And we come out better than if we just do it alone. Certainly need to know it as individuals, but also communally. The whole Bible is almost always everything in community of one shape, form, or another. Well, let's finish up and get into the just little bit of Psalm 8. Oop, forgot my watch, but there's a clock on there. All right. Harry started to give me a countdown clock, so I get better discipline. Thank you, Harry. If you want to bless Harry, you should bless him for a countdown clock. Might not make a difference right away, but eventually it will. The latest psalm was written about 2,500 years ago, and the earliest was probably about 3,500 years ago. There are distinct distances that we have to overcome when we look at the psalms. Time, 
So much changes over time. Culture, Near Eastern, ancient people. A lot in common, though, because people are people are people. While we have unique, distinct cultures, we also have commonalities that are much greater, even over time and culture. And then Christ, or theological distance, they're written before Jesus. But the New Testament quotes them uh, almost as much as Isaiah in terms of who Christ is and what God is doing in Christ, that the Psalms were prophetically even pointing poetically to Jesus. So, to look at the books a little more, if you follow along in your outline, I'm not going to unpack all of this this morning, but there's a great quote from Martin Luther there that I encourage you to read. The composition of the Psalms, they can be broken down into five books, uh, and within this book of Psalms, each section, we know there are five books because each section ends with something called a doxology. And if you know your Greek, doxa or doxa is this idea of glory or giving glory. And so each of the five sections of the book of Psalms of 150 or 151 Psalms, depending on uh, your Bible, but 150 Psalms, there is an ending with this call to praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And so the book ends. Book one goes through chapter 41, 1 through 41. Book two is 42 through 72. Book three is 73 through 89. And book four is 60 through 106. And then book five is 107 through 150. Interesting thing, too, in the Psalms is that the name of God, different names are used. The Hebrew tetragrammaton, Y-H-W-H, called Yahweh, uh, is used in some Psalms, and then Elohim is used in other, Elohim is used in other Psalms, and they all end with this, this call to praise. They're different authors. David wrote Psalms, the sons of, Kor- sons of Korah, um, or attributed to, is often said, um, Asaph and the Korahites. There's different attributions, different authors of the Psalms as well. There are many types of psalms, and people have tried to categorize them in different ways, and I'll just say this, and then we'll get into the one final way to categorize them. Just hang with me, but uh, different ways to categorize them, you can see here, um, before we get to the, the three way of doing it, is that there are hymns, there are laments, there are thanksgivings. So lament, I am grieving before the Lord, thanksgiving, I'm giving thanks for something. Remembrance, I'm remembering an act of old in song. Confidence, wisdom, and kingship. Way better than most songs on the pop charts of today. There's way more variety in the Psalms in terms of range of human and emotions. Most of pop songs today are about why she did that or why he did that. Okay, that might fit under a song of remembrance and perhaps lament. Um, But the range of Psalms goes way beyond into bigger cosmic territory. (laughs) But in wrestling with this, I thought, well, what can I give you real practically here? And then we'll end with Psalm 8 about three, three ways of understanding the types of psalms. And the one that I found most helpful for all of Old Testament and certainly for the psalms, Walter Brueggemann, a theologian, says this. He identified that there basically are three kinds of psalms. If you want to talk about what's going on in people's lives in the psalms, there's three kinds. Thank God for threes. Thank you, Jesus, for people like Walter Brueggemann, the academics who can drill it down and make it simple. There's psalms of orientation, first off. Psalms of orientation, and orientation psalms are psalms in the 150 psalms that when things are going good, seasons of well-being, 
My kids love me. My wife is happy. My bank account is flush. I have a good church family. I got great friends. I love where I'm living. Everything is fine. My mental state is well. My body is healthy and strong. These are the kind of psalms that tell of joy and delight and goodness and coherence. Things make sense like they should. Oh, psalms of orientation. Things are clicking as they should. God makes sense. Everything is clicking. Reliability of God. God's doing what God's supposed to do. God's creation. God's governing law. These are psalms of orientation. These are good things. Uh, for example, Psalm uh, 145 and Psalm 1 speak of this. Lord, these are so good. Thank you. It just overwhelmed. So one way of understanding certain psalms is that they are orientation psalms. They're the kind of psalms that in a good worship set, you begin the worship set with songs of orientations. Thank you, Lord. We come to bless you. Things are good. And not everyone in the church is there, mind you, but we're orienting towards the goodness of God and just declaring that. Psalms of orientation, good stuff. And we need those psalms. We need those psalms when we are celebrating so we don't get wrapped up in our own hubris and pride and start to think that it's all about us. It reminds us of who is on the throne. That it's not about me and and my wonderfulness, (laughs) but that I'm walking in a season of blessing and I'm going to give thanks and I'm going to praise. Psalms of orientation. Psalms of well-being. The second set of psalms that Walter Brueggemann identifies if you want to categorize different psalms, and if you're home church this week or next week, please do this. You're going to pick some psalms and figure out what you think it is. A little bit of homework for you this week and next week. Please do that in home church. Uh, Disorientation psalms. Disorientation psalms are just what it says. They're seasons of anguish and hurt, of alienation, of suffering, and even death. Disorientation psalms include psalms that evoke rage. There's a subcategory that fits within this called imprecatory psalms where people are just raging. One of them says, God dashed the infants of my enemy's head against a rock. How would you like to sing that in worship in modern Canada? But it was an raw honesty about the sense of injustice of their own children being killed and snatched from them. God isn't going to answer that prayer the way that psalm, but that psalm is being real and raw disorientation. Lord, I am so worked up. I am so about this situation of injustice. Think about when we hear of horrible things in the news. The Psalms actually gave voice to that for the ancient people of Israel. Psalms of disorientation. There's also Psalms of self-pity. Oh God, why is every, why is nobody likes me? Everybody hates me. I think I'm going to go eat dirt or worms. There's psalms like that. Psalms of hatred. These are poems and forms of speech. And they're not meant to be taken literally, but they're to match the season in ragged, painful disarray. The speech, the lament, I like how Brueggemann says, is a shape that permits the extravagance, the exaggeration, the abrasiveness needed for this experience. Sometimes you need to be honest with God. And the Hebrew Bible in the Psalms gives us that permission. I remember years ago hearing a pastor who was a guest at a class on death, grief, and growth, and he shared the story of losing his teenage son to a freak snowmobile accident in South Dakota. The son was going outside of some roads between Sioux Falls and Brandon, South Dakota, and I won't forget this, it burned in my mind, and, and he said his son's snowmobile flipped over and he would have been okay except for that his head hit a culvert in the ditch and he was instantly killed. Teenage son almost graduated from high school. And this Lutheran pastor was talking about this 
And even years later, and I think it was probably 15, 20 years later when he was in that class telling this story, he, he said he stayed in relationship with God, but he spoke of his rage that he directed at God, his telling God off and using language to, well, fill in all of the words that you're never supposed to say in a church gathering. He used those words in his prayers with God and in this class. I think the secular students had never heard a pastor use the language before. It was sort of a glorious glee moment, but it, he was making a greater point that in the midst of this absolute horrible thing, he wrestled with God. And the Psalms have language that say, in fact, you may need to do that. Sometimes you may need to tell God off. And guess what? Somebody's like, oh, is he going to smoke me? No, he's not going to do that. He's created you. He knows you better than you know you. He can handle it. And if we can read about things that are imprecatory psalms and times of disorientation, you need to be honest with God if you want a real faith after you get through the wall. It's where the church says you've got to just always buck up and smile when things are going sideways. And no, there's a time to come before the Lord. Even Jesus models this without the human cursing or profanity that sometimes you may process things through like these imprecatory psalms. But sometimes, you know, he says, Father, not... He comes in the garden and says, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. He's wrestling with real pain. God can handle this in disorientation. False holiness, faking it in the midst when you need to process your emotion actually deadens your emotions and deadens your ability to continue with a living relationship with God. Psalms of disorientation, whether it's hurt, alienation, suffering, death, rage, resentment, self-pity, there's a way to process those emotions before the Lord and then he can bring healing once you come through the other side of that. Healing can happen. You don't see the healing immediately, but the healing can happen if you're honest with it. Some of you suppress these things so much so and then they explode in some improper, improper context and become destructive to those that you should be loving towards because you suppress the emotions and you didn't bring them to the Lord. Lord, have mercy on us. Jesus said two men went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee said, Lord, thank you that I'm not like this publican tax collector, Roman collaborator, sinner, and traitor over here. Lord, thank you that I'm not like him. And his praise was all about his false holiness, his goodness that he thought he had, that he owned his own goodness. And the tax collector, the publican, the traitor is sitting or kneeling on the floor and he's saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And he's probably rehearsing his sins in his mind. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said to those around him, which one of those two who went to the temple to pray went home justified before the creator? The answer is obvious. Not the person pretending that all is well. And maybe he was in a season of orientation, but he didn't learn to worship and give thanks where thanks was due. But the one who was honest, the other one went home condemned. False holiness does not save. It is a trick. It is a lie. Okay, I got to land this. New orientation. Where's the last one here finally? Last one. New orientation. Would you say it with me? New orientation. There are some psalms that begin sort of like disorientation psalms. And they go back and forth between a plea, God, please do this, and praise, God, thank you for what, who you are and what you've done. And most lament psalms in the beginning begin with this. But then they talk about this darkness. They talk about this brokenness. Let me read one just to give you an example here. Psalm 40. I relied completely on the Lord, and he turned towards me, and he heard my cry for help. He lifted me out of the watery pit. 
Out of the slimy mud, I quoted this earlier in a different translation, he placed my feet upon the rock and he gave me sure footing. And it goes back and forth, a little bit back and forth. And he's calling God. I thought I was overwhelmed. I was down in despair. I was rage. I was angry. But then something happened. New orientation names the darkness But then there's a surprise that we're overwhelmed by a new gift of life when we didn't think anything was going to happen. There are psalms that speak to this point of we were in despair, we were in a war zone, we were broken, we were defeated, but all of a sudden, unexpectedly, the goodness of God came into the situation and we have been changed. These psalms communicate the surprise of the gospel a new gift from God, a fresh invasion that makes all things new. These psalms affirm the kind of sovereignty that no matter what we face, God knew all the possibilities of all the agents and has plans to work through it and put you in a new situation if you will only stay wrestling and engage at the wall with God. I love these psalms of new orientation. I love this way of thinking of the psalms, that our lives are often like this. Things are going well. Things seem broken. And new orientation psalms where we see, I've seen in the past where this has happened and I've seen the hopeful turn and unexpected victories occur. I think all of these are valuable for a robust Christian faith and worship. I think all kinds of songs and worship as we pick songs and hymns and, and, and we, we wrestle through that, that we should have all of these speaking to these aspects of our life. It may be hard to work them all in every worship set, but this idea of God at work, lament and pain, and then also the unexpected turns of goodness. So this psalm that we conclude with today, Psalm 8, this psalm is an orientation psalm, and I just, I didn't have time to give you a psalm in each category, but this is an orientation psalm. And it just says, good things are happening O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've displayed your splendor above the heavens. God has addressed, and there's so much I could say about this verse, and I don't have time to do it. And just this joy and, and, and reorienting ourselves around who he is, that there's something in doing worship that changes our outlook on life. It says, from the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you ordain praise on account of your adversaries. Enemies of God are arrogant. And here, this idea of even babies calling out to the goodness of God, symbolizing human weakness and humility. Good stuff. Jesus quotes this in Matthew 21, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, you have brought forth perfect praise. Children can take the name of God on the lips. Children's ministry matters. Children can help teach us how to enter into wonder and joy again and to receive it again. Lord, bring more kids into this church. Help us to invite our friends and neighbors and families moves along in this. I keep going here. When I consider your heavens, verses 3 and 4, when I consider the heavens which you've made, the sun, the moon, the stars, what is humans? What are we? Verse 4 is such an interesting thing that it says, like so many people reach this point of, of just why am I here? What am I doing? Why do I matter? And it's saying this in the psalm. What are we? Why in the vast billions of people, what about, how is it that I even matter? And then he says this, that we are made in the image and likeness of God. You've made them just a little less than the spiritual beings, but you've given them physical matter as well. And you grant them rule and authority over everything in the seas. 
I have one quote that I just, I have to read because it's so important. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature, which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if it only in a nightmare. And all day long, we are in some degree helping one another to each of these destinations, a creature that we be tempted to worship or a horror and corruption. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it was the awe, with awe and circumspection proper to him, that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. And you have made humans a little less than the heavenly beings and granted mankind honor and majesty and appoint them to rule over creation. We should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Psalm 8 affirms this. When you're feeling overwhelmed, sometimes you need to go to the book of Psalms and just begin reading through them. and Say, Holy Spirit, make one of these alive in my life. So, Lord, speak your word again into me. And this psalm declares, I'm overwhelmed by the majesty of everything, but in the end of the day, it is you and I, brothers and sisters, male and female, young and old, from every culture and every tribe, that he has created. And you have inestimable, inestimable, invaluable worth because of what God has done in creating you and what Jesus has done on the cross. You are not simply any ordinary mortal. You're a child of the Most High God. Stand with me this morning as we wrap this up. And he ends by saying, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. There was a Sandy Patty song from the 1980s. I remember as a child because my mother liked to listen to Sandy Patty. Jesus help me. And those of you that have no clue who Sandy Patty is, you have lived a blessed life in Christian contemporary music. And there was a song that said, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. It goes on. Oh, Lord, we magnify your name. Oh, Lord. We glory, praise your name, Prince of Peace, mighty God, God Almighty. I didn't look up the lyrics, but part of it's right out of Psalm 8. And he ends it by bringing it around and saying, Lord, as I glorify your name, I'm reminded that you've created me, you've formed me, you've shaped me. Even when I'm overwhelmed by the beautiful mountains of Cyprus, Seymour, and Grouse, at the end of the day, the most important creation is in this room right now. So this morning, I leave you with these takeouts. God's glory is displayed in our right use of our freedom. Do not abdicate your royal responsibility. When you see other humans, will you see them not simply as the other or some weird person or somebody strange, but you see them as someone who is made a little less than the heavenly beings that God has created with majesty and crowned with honor? 
And Psalm 8 comes after some suffering in chapters 3 through 7. And we can understand suffering is a part of being awake like God and that it's also something we are to work against. And finally, about the book of Psalms and the writings. God can handle it. Look at your neighbor and say, God can handle it. I don't know what it is in your life, but he can handle the honesty. And that worship and devotion, reading through the Psalms as part of your devotions in a pattern can be powerful. It shapes you. It gives you language that this culture will not give you. You need this language to inform your prayers, to inform your thoughts. When I was sinking down in the miry clay, my feet had almost slipped. When I thought I was going down for the last time, the Lord reached down with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, and he lifted me up from the miry pit and set my feet upon the rock. Elsewhere, I like how David says, or the, it says, Will the grave praise you, O Lord? He's going through a tough time. Will the grave praise you, O Lord? Will the dead declare, No, Lord, come and act quickly. One final psalm that speaks to me again is, I forget if it's 134, 126, I have to look it up, but it, the gist of it is this. It recalls what God has done in the past. And almost every verse ends with this refrain. You brought the children up out of the desert of Egypt. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. And it goes through a list of things. When I was broken in my sin, the Lord delivered me. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. It says, said, his covenant faithfulness, his loving kindness, his merciful loving kindness, his love endures forever. We are here this morning to declare that no matter what, God is there and desires to remind us and renew us that his love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel now declare his love endures forever. Let the kings and princes declare his love endures forever. Let the lowly who have been lifted up declare that his love endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. So, Lord, continue to move in this church. Thank you for their patience with my, me as I'm working at shortening my sermons. <laughs> but, Lord, thank you that you are working here. And that we are learning from the mystery of your word and the power of your spirit and the glorious death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that in this place you are doing a new work. Lord, we declare new things in a new season in our lives and in this church. And we receive them, O oh God, in humility. That we might serve and seek the flourishing of our city and our lives. Continue your work, we pray, in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.